Good morning, everyone. Along with David, uh, I would like to welcome you, especially if you're, if you're new here with us. Welcome. Glad you are here. Thank you for everyone making the adjustments with the times. We just thought that it would uh, be the best call to meet inside. I think it was the right call. Uh, I want to begin uh, with prayer. Uh, obviously, we, probably all of us, have been praying, uh, seeing the images from our province, from Northwest Territories. And um, I wanted to let you know, uh, there's a church that we are uh, strongly connected with, Praxis Church. It's in Kelowna. They planted a few years ago. We were praying for them. We supported them. So uh, Josh Duell is a pastor there. And uh, Ben has been in contact with him, just said, hey, is there anything we can do to help? He said, uh, not really at this time. He said he's got a long list of people from their church uh, that are willing to open their homes if needed. And so they're kind of ready to help there, but obviously he asked uh, for prayer and for wisdom for them and, uh, and that God would, would move, uh, the fires would go out. So let's begin uh, praying for, for that and for the people affected, and then we'll move on. Uh, Lord God, we are uh, heavy-hearted when we look at the images from around our province, from around our country, really, uh, even, uh, even to Hawaii, Lord, just with the fires, with uh, the devastation that they, they cause. Uh, Lord, I want to pray uh, for... Uh, your sovereign hand to move. Uh, Lord, you're the God of the weather. You're the God of all these things. And so we just pray for rain. We pray for cooler weather. We pray for no wind. We pray for everything that would, uh, would help the crews fight the fires. And Lord, that uh, the fires would just go out. There'd be no more loss of life. There'd be no more loss of, of buildings and homes. And so God, we just, we pray for your, for your help and your mercy uh, to be revealed in that way. And I want to pray uh, specifically for those people who are affected, Lord, especially those who've lost their homes. God, we just, our hearts are especially heavy for them. We pray, Lord, that there would be help, practical help. We pray that insurance would come through. We pray that the local governments and the churches there on the ground, Lord, would be able to provide help. And I pray in particular, Lord, uh, that those churches uh, in the area, Kelowna area, God, that, uh, that the community would see uh, the love of Christ through their willingness just to help in whatever way they can. And so we want to pray, uh, Lord, that that the good that comes from this, Lord, would be uh, that people turn to you more. Lord, this is a devastating thing, and, and it just uh, kind of whole lives are up in smoke. And so I pray, Lord, that in the midst of that trial, uh, that the church, those who know you as Savior and Lord, Lord, they would remain steadfast. People could see their faith, but also that be, there'd be others, Lord, who, are, who are, get a glimpse of the fact that everything in this world will ultimately be gone. And that only you remain. And so we just pray for good spiritual work to be done in the midst of the tragedy. And I uh, pray you help us, Lord, to be mindful, to be in prayer, not just to think it's uh, because we can't see it in our own backyard. It's not affecting us, Lord. Help us to, uh, to journey with them. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing on in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke 21, uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, we've entitled this The Road to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we've been looking at Jesus as he's kind of entering Jerusalem. And in the past few weeks, uh, we've seen uh, a conflict that's been there sort of his whole ministry, but in particular, uh, in this last little while between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders at the time, uh, we saw some, uh, some verbal sparring where they've asked him questions, he's pushed back. And uh, in this last... Uh, little sort of episode, we're going to see Jesus uh, make a comment not directly to the religious leaders, but he's, but he's speaking in general in a way that contrasts the kind of, the mindset, the lifestyle of these religious leaders, fairly wealthy, with, with others. So I want to begin with a 
A couple of uh, stories, not exactly stories, but uh, there's a man whose uh, last name you'll, if you're older, I don't know what that means, but uh, I recognize him. Um, his full name is this, uh, Lodzadiu Valentino Liberace. Recognize the last name, right? Liberace. That's how people just call him, Liberace. I was a famous uh, pianist. He's, uh, he was an actor, entertainer, but he was, he was best known for his extravagant lifestyle. Uh, when he died in 1987, some entrepreneurs uh, bought basically uh, his, all of his clothing, and they had an auction. They filled up eight warehouses with Liberace's clothes. 35,000 items were, were up for sale. They sold tickets. You could buy a $6 ticket just to go and look at it. You could buy a $10 ticket if you wanted to bid on something, and I'm sure they made a lot of money because he had these ostentatious clothes, and everyone just was captivated by this, this man and how he would spend his wealth. Another name, again, if you're a bit older, might recognize is Imelda Marcos. If you know that name... Uh, you, you probably don't associate her as being the wife of the president of the Philippines, which is what she was. You'd think that would be the thing we remember. But really, what do we associate her with? Shoes. shoes. That's right. Thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes that she uh, bought with, uh, sadly, the, the government, the people's money. So huge fraud. But we are uh, captivated by these kinds of people, these kinds of stories. We know the expression, money talks. And, and it's true in these kinds of situations. What you spend your money on says something about you. And so when we hear these stories, these people are spending this kind of extravagant, you know, things and all this wealth, it's just, it's, it says something about them and, and we can't help but be captivated by it. Well, I would say to you that it's not just that uh, money talks in terms of our, our spending, our discretionary spending, but it also talks in terms of our giving. And in our story today, Jesus is going to give kind of a contrast between those who give extravagantly out of their wealth and their riches and those who, who give out of their modest income. And in that, he has, a, he has some important points for us today in terms of our own relationship, not just with money, but especially in terms of our worship of God. So, it's not a long text, four verses, and actually I'm going to begin uh, with just verses one and two. This is, this is just what happened. This is what, what Jesus saw kind of in the marketplace. Here's the beginning of our text. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. That's it. That's what happened. Not very long, small little event that happened, probably not many people noticed it except for Jesus. But let's be clear about what exactly he's looking at because it's a, it's a little different. Um, tithes and offerings were something that the people of God had offered to God in worship since the very beginning. Since like Cain and Abel, there's an altar, there's offerings done there all through the Old Testament. The tabernacle, they kind of, uh, kind of formalized the system and up to the point where Jesus was, there's a temple, a building, and people would still bring their, their tithes and their offerings. They'd sacrifice animals. Uh, but by this point, they had a system where they would accept currency as well. So back in the day, you, all you had was whatever you could grow, whatever you could raise, that's what you'd offer to God. But by the time of, of the New Testament, uh, there was a temple building, and they received uh, coins and money, and the way they did it was very practical, very public. So you see there in the text, it says there was an offering box. But you, you shouldn't picture just like a box. We have a box in the, in the lobby. It says, give on it. You put your envelopes in. It's, it's not just that. This was actually a series of, of boxes. 
And above the boxes, they would have these metal horns. Uh, they called them trumpets. And the, the you know, bigger part was up, and that was to collect the money. And at the bottom, there would be boxes. There were 13 different of these brass funnels, and then 13 different boxes with different things on them. For example, uh, one would be new shekel dues, because there were, there were temple tax, dues you would pay. There was old shekel dues. There were bird offerings. Instead of actually bringing a bird, you would put the money that you would buy the bird, instead you put it in there, bird offerings. They had gold for the mercy seat. They had free will offerings. This was a way to designate the money that you wanted to give. Kind of like we do now. You could write on it, benevolent fund, special giving project. It was that same thing. It was very practical. It was very secure, right? There'd be these stronghold boxes. Uh, it was also very public. And you can imagine that this brought about certain temptations. Because if you're very wealthy, then everyone would see you bringing your, your bag of coins. Not only that, they would hear it. Right? They'd have all these metal coins being put in these metal brass funnels. They actually called it making the trumpet sing. Right? People would come in, and so the, the rich, they would come in with their big bag, or maybe you'd have your servants, right? If you had servants carrying more bags, man, you're really giving a lot, and they would dump it in, clank, 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 and everyone would see, and a lot of attention, and you can imagine the temptation for the wealthy would be to feel, what, very, very puffed up very secure spiritually, right? Look how much I'm giving. Look how much attention I'm getting. Look what I'm doing for, the, the, for God. You can also imagine, though, the poor, they would be tempted to feel very insecure about what they were able to give, right? Everyone would see them going to the offering boxes, not hear very much. They, they would be tempted to feel very ashamed. And that's the situation that we have here with the poor widow. We don't know that she felt ashamed, but we certainly know that she did not give very much. She gave uh, two coins. These coins, in the Greek, the word is lepta, which actually means thin. So this was like the thinnest, like if you could shave off just a little bit of copper, the very thinnest amount, that's what this coin was. Uh, in today's currency, it was a, worth about an eighth of a cent each. So two coins. Not very much. Uh, when she gave it to the temple, the temple really did not gain much in terms of financial wealth. No one really noticed. There'd be no sound. Like when she put it in, nothing. No, so no one, no one paid attention to this poor widow who put in these little coins ex except for Jesus. Jesus, he saw this and he gave it a lot of attention. He was very, very impressed. And he takes a moment to teach his disciples and everyone who's listening something about what true and godly giving looks like. What, what giving looks like that truly pleases God. So we'll move from what happened to now what it means, and there are two points. The first is explicit in the text. Let's read the text first. Uh, Jesus commenting on what he saw. He says, and he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So here's our first point. Giving that pleases God must be a sacrifice. Giving that pleases God, brings pleasure to God, must be a sacrifice. And we see the sacrifice in what the, what the widow gave. And we see the difference in the way that Jesus evaluated that gift. Most of the time, when we're trying to figure out how much something is worth, we, we compare it like to each other, 
right? One person comes and gives in, gives $100 versus someone who gives $10, that's, that's more, right? You, you gave more. It's of greater value. Usually more money is better, right? But if you notice Jesus in the text, he says it was the poor widow who put in more than all of them, which isn't literally true, right? She, she gave in the, probably the least that day. Other people were bringing in literally more money, but in terms of his valuation, hers was more. Why? Because he wasn't comparing it to the others that gave. He was, he was assessing the value based on how much she had. What he's teaching is that the value of the gift is in proportion to what your assets are. And so if you have millions in the bank and you come and give 10,000, that's way more than someone who gives $10 unless you look at how much you actually have. And that's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying the value of the gift comes in the sacrifice, comes in how much of what you have you are giving to the Lord. She, she gave everything. And so the value of her gift was incredibly more than all those who brought in bags and bags of gold but had mountains of gold at home. Now, it's good for us to remember that this woman is not a fictional character. She seems like she is, because all of us know the story, a lot of us know the story, heard it in Sunday school, uh, but she was a real woman. Uh, she had no husband, which means she had no source of income, she had no financial reserves, and she, and she gave the two coins that she had left in the world. Uh, think about if you were that woman's friend or son, or, or something. What would we all, how would we counsel her? What would we say? We would, we would probably say, look, you, you, don't, you don't have to give anything. I mean, you, you don't need to, like, keep it. You need, you need to eat. Or at the very least, we would say, why don't you just give one coin? Right? Keep one for yourself. That's reasonable. That would still be a 50% tithe, which is Five times more, right? The, the tithe is a tenth. That's the typical percentage. That'd still be a 50% tithe. It'd still be a very generous gift. But she, she goes all in. She gives everything. She gives a level of sacrifice that demonstrates her devotion to God. It's the only reason that she would have to do this, right? No one's going to notice her. No one's, no one's going to I mean, for the rich, they might have other reasons to come and give all the money because people, there's attention, there's status, all that. No one, this, only Jesus noticed her. The only reason she would have for giving this much is a genuine love of God, a desire to worship him with everything that she had, a, a joy of putting herself fully in, in the hands of God, knowing, Lord, I'm, I trust you completely, my life, my livelihood, my sustenance, everything, you are my provider. It's, it's the joy of putting herself in a place of intimacy with the Lord. This is giving that pleases God. This is giving that Jesus was impressed with. I think it's worthwhile, though, that we, we note something about this kind of giving, sacrificial giving. This, is not, this was not a new thing at the time, and it was not a, a momentary thing. Meaning, this has always been the kind of giving that God has expected of his people. And so I thought it'd be good just to look at a few sort of uh, parts from the Bible from beginning almost to the end, just to see this. We can see, actually, God has always been pleased with this kind of giving and continues to be pleased. So let's go back to uh, 
I mentioned Cain and Abel, right? One of the first instances we have of, of giving. And uh, if you know the story, you, you know anything about it, you know that Cain killed his brother. Uh, but you might forget, or we might not realize, it was, why? Why did he kill his brother? Because he was angry. It had to do with, with offerings. Uh, they, had, they had brought offerings to God, and God was pleased with Abel's offerings, but not, not Cain's. So let's look at uh, this text here to see Genesis 4, 3 to 5. By the way, if kids, just drop your anytime you want. It's, we're, we just want to be familiar with the noise, okay? I'm not bothered by it. Hopefully no one else is, okay? We got kids in here. It's great, okay? So just throw them on the ground, whatever you want. Um, okay. So uh, Genesis 4, 3, and 5. Here's what it says. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So if you look at the language of the text, what's emphasized there, it's not a difference between fruit and meat. Okay, that's just, one was a farmer, one was a cattleman or whatever, and that, that, that's not the big deal. But you notice that Abel, he, he made a point of bringing the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. This is the best cut of meat. This... this shows that his offering was more costly. It was a greater sacrifice. We get the sense that with uh, Cain, he brought in some fruit, but it wasn't the first fruit. There's no point in the text that it was the best of his crop. It was just some of it. And God had regard for Abel's offering because of the, the sacrifice. You see, what's communicated here is God saying, this, this kind of worship pleases me. It's not just worship where we give what we can spare. It's not just where we can give some of our stuff, but that, that it's, it's worship and giving done at a cost to us, a, a real and genuine cost. Let's jump ahead to King David. Uh, in 2 Samuel, uh, it's a time when God is uh, bringing a consequence upon the people of God because King David sinned. He did a census he should not have done. And so there's a plague that's coming and, and King David is wanting God to relent wanting him to, to stop. And so he's been in, in prayer and God has instructed him, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go, I want you to find a, a man named Arana on his threshing floor. They thresh the grain. I want you to build an altar to me and worship me there. So King David, he goes to find Arana. He says, I need, I need your uh, threshing floor. And um, Arana says, hey, totally, king. This, this is his king, right? You, you can have it. He says, I want to buy it from you. No, no, you, you can have it. Just take it, take my oxen. Right? Because he loves his king and he wants to help his king. And notice David's response. Famous response, 2 Samuel 24, 24. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. You see the principle, David understands. It's not, the worship isn't worth much if someone gave him all the stuff, it didn't cost him anything. It doesn't reveal anything about David's heart. What David wants the Lord to know is, I love you, it's gonna cost me to worship you, I'm good with that, I want that. Because it's an expression of how much he loves the Lord, how devoted he is to him. Okay, one more from the New Testament. Uh, this is the story of the, the woman, a uh, sinful woman with the jar of ointment. Uh, 
Jesus is there with a group of people at like a dinner party. She comes in. These uh, jars of ointment were worth like thousands, thousands of dollars. Um, and she comes in, she opens it up or breaks it off and pours it on his feet. Everyone's like shocked, right? We, if you know the story, what, why would she do this, wasting all this money? And look how Jesus explains it. Uh, Luke 7, 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, uh, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That's the key. The, the connection Jesus is making is, look, when she worships me, give, gives this extravagant sacrifice of pouring out this oil, what it's saying to me about her heart is she loves me. She truly and deeply loves me. And the problem with the rich bringing in their bags of gold, giving out of their abundance, is that you can do that with a cold heart. It, it, doesn't, co- it doesn't really cost them anything. If they know that they have huge storehouses back at home, even giving a lot compared to other people, it's, it's not necessary. It'd be difficult for that to be actually worship of the heart because it doesn't cost them. The measure of genuine worship is whether it is rooted in love. And that is revealed about whether there's a sacrifice. But you might say, look Matt, I, like I hear that, but isn't there somewhere in the Bible where it says that we should just give what we feel like giving? Isn't there somewhere, I'm pretty sure there's a verse somewhere it says, you know, we shouldn't feel like we have to give, but we should give what we feel cheerful. And that is true. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.7 Uh, says this, what does it say? It says, God loves, or each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's saying very clearly there, we shouldn't feel like we have to give a certain amount. We should just give, you know, what we want to, what we're happy about. And to which I would say, yes, absolutely. And the question is, why wouldn't our hearts be full of such joy and gratitude to God that we would give in a sacrificial way? In light of the cross, in light of the, the, the life, the physical life God has given us, and then the, the sacrifices of his own son, how is it that there isn't in our hearts a desire to, to sacrifice and show that, devil, that level of depth and love and devotion for him? So there's no inconsistency between what Jesus is saying here about the widow and, and other parts, what Paul writes. I think C.S. Lewis does a good job summarizing the principle we're seeing here. He writes this, He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. So he's saying, I don't think you can put like just a percentage for everyone, right? You know the exact dollar value. He says this, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. He's saying if we're a Christian on the block and your lifestyle, your cars, your vacations look exactly the same as the person next to you who doesn't know the Lord at all, there's probably something wrong there. The the, the giving that you're giving is probably what you can spare rather than a level of sacrifice. Now, at this point, uh, especially if you're new, you you might be thinking, man, man, the, the church must really need some money. I'm sure next week there's going to be a building campaign that's announced. 
I'm sure there's going to be something. I mean, I mean, God, he must be really hard up for cash. If you're laying it up on this thick, I mean, I mean, look, uh, I don't know what's going to happen at the end of the service, but if there's a plate that goes by my wallet, is staying where it is. Thank you very much. I get it. I get it. Let me just be clear about a couple of things. Number one, God does not need your money, okay? Uh, any view of God that was such that he needed something from us, that God is not worth worshiping. And God himself tells us this. Look at Psalm 50:12. I love this verse. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God's saying, just so we're clear, everything you own, every, everything everyone owns, it's mine. I wouldn't come to you if I needed something. You don't have anything I don't already have. God doesn't need the money in our bank accounts. I would also say this. Uh, the church has bills to pay, but we don't, we don't need your money in that way either. Okay, every week when we talk about giving, if you're here, what we say, try to make really clear is, look, if you're a guest with us, if you're not part of the church family, then this, this financial giving thing is not for you, right? That's not, it's, it's not that we're a church that needs to raise funds in that way and try to fleece as many people as we can. It's not about that. We make it very clear. That's why we don't pass a plate or an offering bag. Uh, sadly, the church has become associated with, with money and we want to do everything we can to make clear to the world around us that's, that's not the point. When we as the church are giving money, it, it's not a fundraising effort. It's, a, it's worship. It's, it's, it's not that God needs our money or the church needs our money. We need to give our money. We, it's important, essential for our own spiritual health that we have a practice of worshiping God with the things that he has given us. That's what it's about. So here's the second the second uh, implicit point from Jesus' teaching. First, giving that pleases God must be a sacrifice. Secondly, sacrificial giving unleashes the blessing and the power of God. It unleashes the blessing and the power of God. Now, just so we're clear, there's no prosperity gospel that's going to be preached here this morning. There's a lot of preachers and a lot of stages wearing nicer clothes than I'm wearing who are going to tell you Tell everyone they can, look, if you really love God, if you really want to be blessed, if you want him to bless you in your life, you need to sow a seed of faith. And that seed usually looks like a check or a money order to my ministry. And then what's going to happen is God, God's going to honor that by giving you back more. You hear all the time from people who fly around in jets and have really nice cars and they're lying. They're speaking heresy. They're... they're they're completely misrepresenting the message of the Christian faith. If that was the message of the Bible, then our story would end with the poor widow driving off in like a Lamborghini chariot, right? Saying she gave everything. How, who could give more than her? And now look what God did. He blessed her. Now she's living the lifestyle. It's not, it's not what happens. We don't have any reason to believe that the poor widow got any richer materially because that's, that's not the kind of blessing that God brings, that God unleashes in our lives when we give in a sacrificial way. So what, what is the blessing? What do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this question. If you're a believer and someone were to say to you, uh, look, just tell me how, how big a place do you want God to have in your life? Kind of a, a lob question, right? How, how big a place? How much influence do you want God to have in your life? Probably all of us, no Lord, would say, well, I would, the biggest place, it's God, it, Jesus. He's my savior, he's my king, he's, I, I love him, I, I, I want God to have the biggest place in my life. Yes, good, but, 
probably most of us would say that. But what we forget is that we have a finite amount of space in our life. A finite amount of influence in our life. Like the jar with the rocks in it. And if there are already a lot of rocks in the jar, when we try to put God into it, there's, there's no place for him. The only way that God can actually have a, a big, the biggest place in life is if we take some rocks out of the jar. And those rocks are the idols in our lives. Those rocks are the things that we look to for hope and for purpose and for joy. And money tends to be a big rock. Money, possessions, wealth, whatever, whatever you mean. So the act of sacrifice, of, of giving up some of those things, it creates room. It, it enables the influence and the power of God to be felt and to be active in our lives because we're, we're making space. That, that's, that's why it's necessary. It pleases God, but also it's, it's beneficial for us. It's essential for us, for us to grow, for us to have intimacy with the Lord and for us to experience his power. And, and for this, I want to look at one more story. Uh, this is back in 1 uh, Kings. This is another story about a widow uh, this time with the prophet Elijah. Uh, this is the widow of Zarephath. Uh, this was a time in, um, in Israel's history where there was a drought and uh, Elijah is walking along the road. This is in, uh, yeah, chapter 17. And he sees a widow. And the widow is uh, picking up sticks on the side of the road and he says to the widow, uh, look, could you please uh, make me something to eat? Right? And, and she says, uh, look, I have nothing baked. I have only a handful of flour, a, a little jug with oil in it. In fact, what I was about to do is to make a little, a little cake. I was going to give some to me, some to my son, and then we were going to die because we don't have any more food. There's nothing growing in the land. Like, it's arid. There's, there's, it's completely hopeless. Now, you would th what would you think that a compassionate, loving prophet of God who knows that God can do miraculous things, what would you think that his response would be? What would our response be? It probably would be words of, like, uh, compassion, right? Oh, that's so tough. Oh, look, okay, I want to care for you. Don't worry, God's going God's to look after you. That's not what he says. He, here's what he says. Um, this is verse 13. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. It's kind of interesting, right? He, he says to the widow who has just a little tiny bit of food left for her son, hey, um, give that to me. And then once you do that, have faith that God is going to, he's going to bless you, he's going to take care of you. It's interesting, last week we saw some strong words from Jesus against the religious leaders who were taking advantage of widows, right? Devouring their houses, taking what little they had left for themselves. And so you can imagine the widow. Think about the situation she is in. She has to make a choice, right? I only have this little bit left. I'm going to bake it. Imagine her bringing it to him. And now we have, we have nothing. Is he being harsh with her? No, he's... He's giving her an opportunity to fully worship God by trusting his word and putting herself in a position where she can experience the power of God, which is what happens. 
right? What is this scene all about? It's about, does she trust the word of God? Does she believe the prophet of God? She knew who he was. It wasn't just some guy walking by. She was Elijah, the prophet of God. And Elijah, the prophet of God, is saying, here's God's word to you. There is going to be oil. There's going to be flour. Do you trust me? And she had an opportunity to experience through her trust, through her sacrifice, the power of God, which came in, in two ways. One, the jar and that they were full. Miraculously, God provided for them. But secondly, her son got sick and died. And she appealed to the prophet, can you pray to God? And, and God raised her son from the dead. Imagine if she had said to Elijah, in that moment, look, like I know God is great, but this is just too much for me. All I know is I have this little bit left. I got to feed my son. You can't expect me to give you what, what I have. There's no food anywhere. I got to feed my son. And then I don't know what's going to happen next, but I just, what you're asking is too great. What would have happened? Elijah probably would have moved on. They would have run out of food. And when her son died, he would have stayed dead because she would have separated herself from the power, from intimacy with God that comes through the prophet. See, I don't think we realize it. But the act of sacrifice, it, it actually breaks apart the idols in our life in a way that unleashes a power that, is, that we all want, but we aren't always willing to take the step of faith to make it happen. I thought of it like this, if this is helpful. I have a rudimentary understanding of nuclear fission, as we all do. And um, all I know is that uh, the atomic bomb and nuclear energy fission happens when uh, the atom is split, right? That's right, right? Okay, so, so think of the energy that's contained within an atom, this minuscule, minor, minute part of God's creation, and yet when it's hit with neutrons or whatever happens to it, the bonds, they, when they split, it unleashes this immense amount of power. In my mind, I, I see that spiritually, what happens to us. Our hearts are fused with idols, when we make steps of obedience, steps of sacrifice, there's a split. And in that split, there's an immense spiritual power that happens. Why? Because the, the, the domination of that idolatry in our lives is all of a sudden, it's, it's pushed back. All of a sudden, we, we take a step away from the, the road that the devil wants us to walk on, the way our sin wants us to walk on, where we find all our hope in the things of this world, and we begin to go the other way, and the Spirit of God moves and we begin to, to see life differently. We begin to receive and hear the word of God differently because there's been a break, a split, and the power of God is unleashed. This is what sacrificial giving is about. It's not, it's not about the church getting money. It's not about God getting money. It's about God growing us, helping us to separate ourselves from the things that have got us in chains. And it's not just money, but it, it tends often to be money. Here's another story. I read this a couple of years ago. A story about a church, a little, little church, and uh, they were going to build an addition. Uh, so they did a fundraising campaign, right? We're going to build an addition. We have the need for it. It's great. It's, uh, so they started, you know, telling people about it people writing checks, making pledges. They were going to have a night to come together to worship God and to ask for an offering, right? That people would write and give money towards it and they were going to raise as much as they could and then whatever's left, they were going to, they were going to borrow it. The, you know, the leadership figured we, we can make this work. This is a good thing. So they put it before the church 
Everyone came, they're worshiping, came to the time where the pastor got up, he said, okay, you know, explain, God has blessed us, we want more room, all these things, good things, uh, so let's give our offering, and people started giving, and it was, it went well. Uh, you know, it wasn't a huge church, they could see sort of how much money had come in, they were pleased with it, but the pastor, he just felt, he'd been feeling a sense of conviction, like, like maybe this, there's something else that God wanted them to do, and so... They were singing another song, but he, he, he went back up and he said, look, I just, I feel that the spirit of God is saying that we need, there's more that we can give, that, that, that God wants us to, to dig deeper in a sense and worship him more. And so let's sing another song and let's just pray about it. And so people were praying and they, you know, people wrote a few more checks, a few more, more money came in. And so the leadership was like, this, this is great. We can make this work, right? We can, they could just, you know, rough calculations. We can borrow the rest. This is going to be great. But the pastor, before things were done, he just felt this conviction of the Spirit of God. And he said, no, we're, we're not done yet. And so we came up again, imagine the awkwardness, and said, look, look, the conviction that I feel is that we are not going to borrow any money for this edition. This is something that's of the Lord, and that he wants this church to support this fully. And so I'm just laying this before you, that we would give, that we would not go and borrow money, that we would support this initiative and so we kind of laid it out there and the spirit fell on the people and people just started giving in a way they hadn't before. And they funded it all in one night. They give glory to God. Here's why I tell the story. If you hear that story as a story of church fundraising, then you're, you're totally missing everything that's going on this morning. You're missing the words of Jesus. It's, it's not about the money. It's not about how much that we can give. What that story is about is a story of spiritual renewal and revival in the church. That in that moment, what was going on, the important thing that was going on is that there were people there who were giving what they could spare to a good cause. And it would have been easy for everyone just to walk away and say, that was great, we raised a bunch of money, that's fantastic. But God wasn't satisfied because he didn't want the people to give what they could spare. He wanted them to sacrifice he wanted them to say, look, I'm not going to buy that boat. I'm going to give so we can expand the, the ministry. I'm not going to go on that vacation. We're gonna... He wanted people in their hearts to do the hard work of seeing, do I really love God most? Where's my hope? Where's my joy? And there was a spiritual act that happened of power as the pastor spoke to them and the spirit moved. What Jesus is saying about this widow is, is man, there's power there. Right? She, gave, she gave everything, not out of her abundance. It revealed a heart of true worship, true devotion. That is what God wants to happen in us. And it only happens when we come to the place of sacrifice, where we let go of the things in our life. And, and it is money, but it's also our status. It's also maybe, maybe a relationship that we have. It's also... The other things, the other things that are fused to our heart that are hindering our intimacy with the Lord. It's a small little window on one day in Jerusalem. But the words of Jesus, they speak to us still today. And my hope for us as a church, hear me, is that from this, that not there be some financial windfall, but that we would examine our hearts and say, where, where are there too many big rocks? And God doesn't even have a place. Where, where am I so linked in terms of my joy and hope and peace with the things in my life that I, that I can't even fathom giving some of it up? 
My hope is that we'd feel that conviction and, and, and allow the Spirit of God to have his, have his way in us so those things will be pulled apart and so the power of God will be unleashed in us in terms of spiritual renewal and growth. So let me, let me pause. Let me close by praying for us in this way. Lord Jesus, you see the human heart so clearly. You see behind our actions. You saw this woman that, that no one else probably even noticed and you saw the depth of her love for you and it pleased you. And Jesus, I, I pray that, that your words would be instructive to us, they'd be convicting to us, that we would want to please you, that for those of us who know you as Savior and Lord, that, that we would want the joy, the delight of, of, of knowing that this is a sacrifice in terms of the, whatever it is, the, the, the check or the, the, the money that we give or to the time perhaps of saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time doing this and, and less time in my leisure, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would be prompted, not out of obligation, but out of a genuine sense of love and thankfulness to you. For you are our Savior. You are our Lord. You gave everything for us. And God, I pray that we would, we would want that and that we would do the hard work of, of wrestling against the, the binds, the, the bondage that we have to the things of this world so that we might be freed up to worship you fully, serve you fully, and that there would be a spiritual renewal among us, that we would easily and gladly give to those in need, and that we get to the point where it's, it's, it's a natural part of our worship, a natural part of our life. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move, that we would remember your sacrifice on the cross, and that our hearts would be filled, not with obligation, but with thankfulness and joy as we seek to worship you in all our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.